Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey everybody, bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. This is Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Carvalho about his new book, Collision of Wars, A Deep History of the Fall of Aztec Mexico and the Forewing of New Spain, published by Oxford University Press this year. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pamela. It's wonderful to be here. And hello to everyone out there in podcast landia. Uh, David, I wonder if you could begin uh, the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I'm at Boston University, where I'm an associate professor of archaeology, uh, anthropology, and Latin American studies. And my primary work is as an archaeologist um, in Mexico, working on the pre-Hispanic era, Primarily, though, um, you know, everywhere you look, of course, in central Mexico, uh, there are the remains of, of colonial structures and, and um, the, tr- the, the massive transformation of uh, society that, that is, is the focal point of this particular book. Um, and uh, some combination of working in central Mexico for the last 20 plus years. Um, and particularly working in the state of Tlaxcala for about 10 of those years, um, had me thinking about this momentous encounter, um, and in particular, uh, the role of the Tlaxcalteca as these key um, uh, allies of Cortes and the Spaniards, um, and that sort of tumultuous history, the fraught history of, of you know, the, the, the Tlaxcalteca of Malinche, of, um, as you know well, like to be uh, the Malinchista or, you know, to be a, uh, thought of as, as a traitor in, in certain ways, that, that how, how it resonates in contemporary culture uh, as well. Um, but, you know, primarily my, my focus has been on, um, in Tlaxcala and at Teotihuacan, the, the, the large pre-Aztec city, just north of Mexico City, uh, focused on all sorts of issues of uh, community organization, household organization, just social life in the in the pre-Hispanic era. Thank you. And now, can you tell us the story behind, your personal story behind writing Collision of Worlds? Why did you write this book? I just want to tell the, the audience that uh, the language is very engaging, and I think it might be intended for broader audiences, but I would like you to tell us more about it. Yeah, this really has been a labor of love in some ways, and and getting back to uh, issues that first interested me when I started out in archaeology. So um, as an undergraduate, when I discovered archaeology and and pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica as a topic of study, um, this is, you know, in the the early to mid-1990s, there were a couple books then that were pretty formative in my thinking about uh, these issues. Um, and uh, that includes Hugh Thomas, who is a historian, um, a, a lot of 
about the Spanish world, um, and uh, he wrote a book on the on the conquest at that time. And then also the Mexican author Carlos Fuentes, who um, wrote a a book called The Buried Mirror, which was commemorating the quincentennial of Columbus. So this was for 1992. And thinking about transatlantic history, thinking about these these deep connections um, between Iberia and Mesoamerica. And so part of that is also my own personal uh, history uh, as being having a transatlantic family. So my uh, abuelos uh, came from Spain during the Spanish Civil War. They were fleeing Franco and the dictatorship there, and they came to Cuba uh, and actually got married there and lived there for a couple of years before then migrating to New York. Um, and some of their brothers and sisters stayed in Spain. Others came to Cuba and then went on to uh, Venezuela and Uruguay uh, and some to Florida. And so so I have this diaspora transatlantic family myself and, and have always just been interested uh, in these um, uh, transatlantic connections. And in, in the preface of the book, did you explain, and I mean, this is a logic following your uh, background in archaeology, but you explained that the, fo- the book focuses on material things and the co-creative actions of Mesoamerican and Spaniards. The, the story you wrote, you tell us, consider mute objects and places uh, of the past that act simultaneously with written narratives narratives of witness or those that heard about those narratives. Uh, how did the sources you used complement each other? Yeah, so um, as an archaeologist, I, I realized that my role, my lens in, in this, you know, complex uh, retelling of these events of 500 years ago um, would be more valuable if I sort of emphasized how I see things, which are involve uh, temporal change over long periods of time, centuries or millennia, and also the material record, what we call sites and artifacts in in archaeology, the stuff people made, where they they used it, their their ancient cities, and the fact that there's uh, many centuries of history, like you know well, um, you know, being from Mexico and knowing how many sites uh, are just testament in a very profound and material way to centuries of history, right? So, um, for instance, if you go to a place like Tlatelolco, where you, you can see the, the Plaza de las Tres Culturas, and you can see the remains of the Aztec pre-Hispanic um, levels, and on top of them, the colonial level of a Franciscan church, and behind them, contemporary 20th century, 21st century architecture. Um, so that idea of a palimpsest history in a particular site, in spaces, in the built environment has always been very appealing to me. And one of the ways that I sort of navigate the world when I'm traveling or, or, or doing research is, is thinking about those connections and those layers of history. Your first chap- chapter opens the door to the history of the meeting of two wars. Uh, and those two wars were separated for centuries and, of course, they own have had their own social cultural development. Uh, in order to start understanding these, uh, these elements for each of these two wars, you introduced two towns, Cholula in Mexico and Medellin in Spain. And you call them the points of entry uh, of this encounter. 
why these two towns? Why are they telling us about this story? Yeah, I I wanted to start with Cholula and Medellin because they um, have some similarities in being places where there's this layered history where you can see millennia of pre-Hispanic Mexican intercolonial occupation in Cholula and then Iberian history in the case of Medellin. Um, both of them have prominent hills on the landscape that uh, anchor this history. Um, and in the case of Cholula, it's uh, what the post-classic occupants, the Cholulteca, called the Tlachihualtepet, which means the human-made, man-made mountain, um, which of course isn't actually a mountain, it's a buried pyramid. And it's uh, by some accounts the largest pyramid ever erected in terms of total volume uh, in the world. And it has uh, multiple construction phases uh, through a 700 year or so history of occupation. And then um, it fell into disuse by time the uh, um, uh, post-classic period where the Choluteca uh, continued with a new center of, of uh, their city um, if you go to Cholula today, where there's the monastery of San Gabriel in the, in the, the center of town, that was where um, the pyramid to Quetzalcoatl during the Aztec period was erected, and that was dismantled uh, by Cortez. Um, but on top of the Tlachihualtepet, or the Great Pyramid of Cholula, um, the Spaniards also flattened that and put a church. First, there was just a cross, and then eventually a church. And so you see this colonial era church on top of it as well. So you can really see those, those layers of superimposed history. And likewise in Medellin, Medellin of course was the hometown uh, of Cortez. And so uh, it connects directly to Cholula as a place um, where Cortez ordered this massacre in Cholula's sacred precinct. And it's one of the you know, pivotal events in, in the narrative of the actual uh, Aztec-Spanish war. Um, and there in Medellin, there is a natural hill, but it was heavily modified by human activities. And so you can see uh, a Roman theater on one side, and you can see a um, uh, actually Islamic period water cisterns um, in the top of the hill and a, and a, um, uh, a castle from you know, the medieval period up on top as well. And even the church where Cortez was baptized, it's the, uh, the Iglesia de San Martin, and under that um, was a Roman temple. And so I, I just love the fact that there's this, you know, the deep roots of, of cultures in both areas that are also then two towns that are inextricably linked through the events of 500 years ago um, when Cortez ordered that massacre in Cholula. The second and third chapters present a deep history of Mesoamerica and Iberia. Both are rich in details regarding the people and environment of the region. Let's start with the chapter that talks about Mesoamerica. As I, as I mentioned, they have a lot of details. I would like us to focus on two particular elements that will play a central role in the story that you developed in your book. First is the idea or the micro-patriotism that existed in Mesoamerica and also the variety of languages spoken there and the variety that the society had in there. Yeah, so the idea of uh, micropatriotism comes out of researchers such as um, 
uh, James Lockhart and his students like Matthew Restall, who've written uh, quite a bit of new conquest history, um, updating you know, over the last few decades, um, earlier narratives about the conquest. And uh, something they've pointed out is that um, the affiliation, you know, there's no sort of singular Aztec perspective on the conquest or Maya perspective on the conquest, because the people that we um, use those terms for really, uh, you know, associated as different ethnic groups and very closely with their city-state, um, which in Nahuatl, the Aztec language is the Alpipetl. And so that was really your primary affiliation in Mesoamerica is, is the city-state. And, um, and because of that, there wasn't this overall sense of uh, us versus them um, when these foreigners from you know, Spain and other places arrived on the shores of Veracruz. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that particular landscape was full of not just different city-states, but different ethno-linguistic groups, people speaking different um, languages that are quite diverse. So just as an example, starting in the, in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, that's the region of, of the Maya, and there's not just one Mayan language, there's, today there's over 30 of them, and they're, they're um, roughly as related to one another as Romance languages are. And so the fact that there'd be Yucatec Mayan speakers uh, you know, in the Northern Peninsula and then heading westward through the Gulf of Mexico, um, there was the Chontal uh, Maya. Um, th these were important groups because they were the ones the Spaniards first encountered and then became translators, most importantly, the woman uh, known as Malinche or Malinsli, who uh, spoke both these languages as well as Nahuatl, which was the dominant le uh, language of the Aztec Empire, the lengua franca. And um, so, so language really played this key role in mediating uh, the uh, encounter and conquest or invasion. And I really wanted to trace those roots back. So why was it that there was a sort of um, somewhat balkanized political landscape, such linguistic diversity uh, in Mesoamerica? Um, and, and looking that, again, in, through deep time, and we can come back to earlier chapters of Mesoamerican history, like where I do a lot of my research at Teotihuacan, that was really a polyglot city. It was a city where multiple languages were spoken. There were ethnic enclaves of Zapotec speakers from Oaxaca. And we know that there were some Maya groups there and some from West Mexico, probably around Michoacan, some from the Gulf of Mexico. So, so you know, Central Mexico had been the crossroads for millennia. And I, I want to trace that history back so the reader can understand the broader context of what happens starting in 1519. And now going to the other scenario of this story. In the chapter titled Iberia, A Deep History, you open with an epigraph. And just warning, probably it's not going to be the only epigraph I'm going to bring to the conversation because mm -hmm. they were all in point. But uh, this epigraph reads, Spain, which was to play so great a part in the discovery and colonization of the new world, was once discovered and colonized itself. Can you tell us more about this part of Spanish history? Yeah, so that was a historian, J.B. Trend, who wrote that. And um, I, I thought it was fascinating because so much of charting Iberia's deep history uh, are has to do with these waves of invasions that the peninsula faced. And so 
in some cases they were more peaceable. Like, so for instance, first, uh, you know, um, well, there, there were earlier migrations uh, during um, period of early agriculture and the development of, of Bronze Age society. But the, you know, the first real consequential colonizers that I refer to are the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians, of course, came from the Eastern Mediterranean and they sailed all the way across the Mediterranean Sea and into the Atlantic. And that starts this naval history that Iberia is known for. So, um, you know, if you were just to start with the question, you know, um, why did Iberians cross the Atlantic and colonize and not uh, American societies crossing eastward to colonize Europe? Some of that has to do with naval uh, history and um, and navigation and 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 really going back to the Phoenician period is the start of it. Obviously, it's much more uh, complex than that. But I like to frame the Iberian Peninsula as a hinge between two worlds, the Mediterranean and the Atlantic world. And the Phoenicians are sort of the first to do that by colonizing parts of southern Spain. Um, after them are the Carthaginians, who of course were the descendants of Phoenicians themselves. It, found their own colony in North Africa at Carthage, and they actually conquered parts of the Southern Peninsula. And then in wars with uh, Rome, the, known as the Punic Wars, um, eventually lost control of Iberia, which then went to Rome. And, and so then there was centuries of Roman rule, uh, which brought a lot of the infrastructure to um, Spain's urbanism. Most, most cities in Spain that you go to today have some Roman roots to them, as well as many roadways. Um, and then, of course, once Rome collapsed, then you have the Goths, and uh, and after that, um, the Islamic invasion and, and you know, centuries of, of rule uh, and the Reconquista. And so, it, you know, it had been this a crossroads, but also a battleground for uh, millennia. And I think that's part of framing the the conquest of Mexico is is sort of you know an extension of these waves of conquest on the Iberian Peninsula, then eventually spilling over with the Reconquista into the Canary Islands and then into the Americas, into the Caribbean, and then into Mexico. And then after you gave us all uh, the basis to understand these two worlds separately in a long, uh, in their long history, you write uh, the chapter Mexico and Spain on the eve of the encounter. And in there, you made this comparison of different sociopolitical aspects of Mesoamerica and Iberia just before their encounter in the 16th century. You compare several aspects, ethnic and national identity, cities, trade, economy, forms of government, etc. Um, I would like to talk about uh, two aspects, one more in depth, but before going to that one, And there is a little piece of information you present that I'm curious about, and that is the role of women in the political organization, whether in Mesoamerica and Iberia. Yeah, that, that was really interesting to read about. It wasn't something that I had you know, thought of going into you know, this particular comparison. Um, I do, you know, in, as an undergrad, I studied political science, and so I think I've always been interested in comparative political systems as part of my work in, in you know, uh, as an archaeologist in, in Mexico. But so, you know, something that I had noticed in Mesoamerica is you have certain societies or periods of time where um, societies are more organized with an emphasis on kinship and especially dynastic kinship. Um, as an example, the classic period Maya 
society um, had uh, you know, an institution of divine kingship um, and bloodlines mattered very much. Uh, they called their kings Ulahau, uh, which means royal blood uh, lord. Um, other societies like the Mishtek uh, of the post-classic period um, also really had strong bloodlines there. And so did uh, Castilla or Castile in, in Spain, where the bloodlines ma mattered a lot and royal bloodlines and purity of bloodlines. And in those societies, um, they, they might practice uh, um, male preference primogenitor, meaning that the firstborn son uh, would, would be the one who would have the right to rule or that title, um, but they would allow for female rulers. Um, and so on the one hand, those societies can seem more autocratic in very much centralizing power, but at the same time, it allows for um, you know, different gender roles um, or the possibility of, of female rulers. In other societies that tend to be more pluralistically organized, where say a um, noble council or a senate is responsible for electing the ruler, um, those, even though they're, they can be more open and, and they're, they're, there can be more access for other families to uh, install a ruler, um, they tend to always elect males. So there actually tends to be a, you know, a blockage um, to uh, female rulership. Um, and we see that in some cases from central Mexico, uh, um, including the you know, Tenochka, the, the Mexica Tenochka, the, the dominant group from Tenochtitlan. Um, and interestingly, in the Iberian Peninsula, that um, was true of Aragon, so the other main kingdom, um, which had a you know, court structure and, um, and then and, you know, male rulership. Um, now, that's not to say there were, there were instances in Aztec societies of, of female great speakers, but they were very rare. And so, so I th think that was an interesting comparison that in both areas, you had a more kinship dynastic model and then also a more sort of pluralistic senate or council society and how gender intersected with that. And there's a fascinating section of that chapter that is titled Technologies of Imperialism. In there to explain the different approaches to warfare the Spanish and the Aztecs had, and you also explain the technology each of them used, um, and related to, to that in the following chapter, you talk about different conceptions about life, and you introduced the concept of human sacrifice and the, the role it played in war. So can you tell us about these different approaches to warfare and technology and ideas about life, warriors, etc.? Yeah, so we, um, in, say, the Western world, or a tradition emphasizing the Mediterranean world and, and uh, early civilizations, uh, of Eurasia tends to focus a lot on technology. So I can say this as an archaeologist, um, you know, and probably most listeners know that we talk about there being a Stone Age or Paleolithic and then uh, the, the Neolithic when there's the agriculture where there's new stone tools. And then you get the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And, and so we, we sort of chart the passage of time very much through technology and a very specific technology. It's sort of utilitarian or uh, military um, weaponry um, and and um, and those sorts of implements, and they're they're prioritized in our uh, you know, long-term histories of the old world in particular. 
And that doesn't work for the Americas or the New World, um, where you know you get all sorts of technological innovation, but not so much in um, uh, weapons or or um, tools. Where there there was some bronze technologies in the Americas and West Mexico in particular, and in the Andes, um, but there wasn't that sort of ramp up of technological change. Um, and you know, so sometimes you hear someone saying somewhat pejoratively that you know the Aztecs were like a Neolithic society, meaning that they used uh, primarily stone tools. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's all sorts of technological innovations that, for instance, occurred first in Mesoamerica and not in Europe. Like so, the the um, concept of zero uh, that uh, the Maya and other cultures had developed um, many centuries before. Uh, uh, it did in Europe, um, and so you know, if we if we were to look at mathematics or astronomical knowledge, the fact that Mesoamericans, you know, for instance, knew that Venus was a single entity; it wasn't uh, an evening star and a morning star. Those sorts of um, astronomical observations that were very sophisticated early science. Um, we could, you know, look at societies that way and and how they differed. But in any case, our our lens often and you know archaeology or the history of archaeology has tend to focus on on these technological changes and a lot having to do with military technologies. And so in that case, yes, we can certainly see some differences. And um, and this has to do with uh, going back even to origins of agriculture in the two areas. So um, in uh, Eurasia, where there was the domestication of large animals, uh, most importantly for warfare, this would include horses. Um, which were not domesticated in, in the Americas. There were, you know, there, there were few animals that lent themselves to domestication. So in the Andes, you have camelids like llamas and alpacas. But in Mesoamerica, you know, there are basically food animals or there's domesticated dogs and, and um, turkeys, but there aren't large animals that would be ridden and then were part of a cavalry, for instance, in the case of, of warfare. Um, likewise, there wasn't that ramp up in metallurgy that would allow for uh, iron and steel weapons. Um, and, and old world warfare really was an arms race at a much more accelerated scale than you saw in Mesoamerica. In Mesoamerica, the technologies of uh, offensive weapons and fortifications were relatively simple. There wasn't that arms race in the same way as you see uh, in, in Eurasia. Um, and related to that then was the ideas about when it is appropriate to kill and what are, what are, what's the morality behind um, killing, whether it's in the battlefield uh, or elsewhere. And we have to understand Aztec human sacrifice within that context. And um, there were instances of sacrifice that did not have to do with warfare, but the vast majority did. The vast majority of uh, sacrificial victims um, were uh, uh, prisoners of war. They were people who were caught in battle. And in fact, the entire objective of battles um, was generally uh, to not kill people on the battlefield, rather to cripple them uh, and uh, bring them back to the temple for sacrifice. So the killing was done off of the battlefield. And as an Aztec warrior, you would only advance in rank. And, and this is like in many parts of the world, one of the, the few forms of social mobility is to, you know, to become and the highest in Aztec society would be an eagle warrior or a jaguar warrior, but there were other levels of um, military rank, and they had to do with the amount of captives you took for sacrifice, not 
it, you know, killing people on the battlefield didn't count in this, this calculus. And so, so those differences were huge and they, they really affected how the war between the Spaniards and Aztecs unfolded. And now following the path of your book, let's situate ourselves in the Mesoamerican coast, ready uh, to see the expedition that would result uh, in the invasion and eventual demise of the Aztec Empire. But before going there, uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about several characters in this history, some of them the listeners might be more familiar with than others. But how would you introduce Hernando Cortés to this moment in this history? And if possible, try to make a, a comparison with Gonzalo Guerrero, for instance, how those uh, stories are different. Yeah, that's a great comparison. So, yeah, Hernando Cortez, and as you know, he, he went by Hernando or Fernando in his lifetime. Hernan is, is a posthumous name for him. Um, but so he came from Extremadura and Medellin, we already talked about, but Extremadura was a region uh, or is still a region of southwestern Spain. But, you know, at the time of the Reconquista was very much the frontier. It was a militarized frontier with the Christian um, uh battles against uh, Islamic forces in, in southern Spain. And because of that, it you know had uh, its own sort of uh, autonomy, like the, the way that the Reconquista uh, unfolded. Um, there was sort of this you know, frontier general role and um, uh, relatively small fighting forces in continual warfare uh, against uh, Islamic forces. And, and you know, Cortes came out of that environment. Um, he was schooled at the University of Salamanca, which I do talk about a, a decent amount in the book because it's you know, a fascinating place. You know, it was a, the institution of higher learning uh, in Spain at the time. And, um, but Cortes uh, w went to study law, which was a more vocational degree. He wanted to become a, a letrado, a, a person of letters, who would then work within the, the bureaucracy of um, emerging Spain, like this was you know, still a period with different kingdoms like Castile and Aragon, um, but it was becoming more nation-like. It was becoming more unified at this time. And, um, and you know, so, so he had this education that left after two years, but it was, it was sort of very vocational and focused on, um, uh, you know, just the, the letter of the law and, and being a bureaucrat in this expanding imperial system. Um, uh, whereas, and I contrast that with the education that theologians at Salamanca received, which was a much more humanistic uh, education. And, uh, you know, and I think it's very interesting in the different courses, like uh, many of the friars who had a more sympathetic perspective on native peoples of Mesoamerica had had this fuller, what I would see as a fuller education uh, in, in, you know, humanistic disciplines. Um, Guerrero, though, is a fascinating figure in having this sympathetic perspective to the point of basically marrying into a Maya uh, community. He um, and uh, another Spaniard, uh, Spaniard Francisco de Aguilar, uh, were marooned on the Yucatan Peninsula. And um, whereas Aguilar maintained his Spanish identity and thought he was, say, living among heathens, um, Guerrero adapted to life among the Maya and married uh, a Maya princess of, you know, a particular kingdom and uh, had children so that probably you know, what could be considered the first 
mestizos or, or mixed race, uh, at least between European and indigenous ancestry um, in Mesoamerica. And when Cortez shows up uh, and hears that, you know, that they're in these maroon Spaniards, <clears throat> he wants to uh, call for them as they could provide uh, um, information, logistical information. And Aguilar uh, comes to Cortez and, and is uh, a key uh, component in the translation. So he can speak Yucatec Maya, which eventually gets um, translated into Nahuatl by Malinche, which will allow Cortez to speak with Moctezuma or other uh, Aztecs. Um, so, so Aguilar then takes on this key early role in the translation. Eventually, Malinche, uh, you know, basically picks up enough Castilian to be doing much of the translating herself. Um, whereas Guerrero stays behind and, in fact, apparently even fights in the skirmish against the Spaniards, and so he he completely changed his identity. Um, and so is a fascinating figure um, as we sort of revisit this episode of 500 years ago um, and how nuanced and complex people's different strategies were. Just a quick follow-up on, on Guerrero. Is, are there enough sources to reconstruct uh, his figure or it is kind of an elusive figure uh, in the narratives? Of you mean what, what he looked like? Uh, no, I mean, he, his historical, like all the things he did when he is, uh, died, etc., or it's a, an elusive figure, as many in this time. Yeah, well, some of the accounts say that he was, he had his um, earlobes perforated, so he wore ear spools, like the classic Mesoamerican, and that he was scarred. So he must have had some sort of scarification, bodily scarification, that the Maya practiced. Um and so we know those details from, well, historical accounts of the period. But um, yeah, not much more uh, than that. Although we do, I think his wife's name was Gaziel Ha, I believe. I have it written somewhere. But so we know a little bit about you know, that, um, that union. Uh, and and I, um, I've, just, I've never seen it in person, but I, I know that there is a, um, a monument in the Yucatan that is supposed to be depicting the couple and their children as sort of the primer mestizaje. Well, you, you were already introducing uh, La Malinche, and I'm well aware we are uh, leaving several important characters uh, out of this conversation, but I would like to talk for you to introduce to the listeners La Malinche and her significance. Maybe if we can mix this with indigenous alliances with uh, Spanish conquistadors at the time. Yeah, so um, La Malinche is, uh, was born in a, 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 a sort of a frontier area between the southeasternmost extent of the Aztec Empire, which was you know, Nahuatl speaking, and then the Maya world, um, especially the Chontal Maya of um, uh, Areas around uh, Laguna de Terminos, which is um, you know uh, in the southern Gulf of Mexico, and those those were communities that there was an active trade in uh, from the Caribbean into the Gulf of Mexico uh, using canoes. In fact, in one of his letters, uh, Columbus remarks on these as he's you know, um, sailing around in the area. You can see these large trading trading canoes, and so they went back and forth. You know, some listeners maybe have visited the site of Tulum, a Maya site. Uh, on in, you know, in the Caribbean and the northeastern Yucatan Peninsula, that was active at this period. 
and it was part of a trade that would be going um, around the peninsula from you know, what is today uh, Belize and in, um, into Mexico and into the Gulf region. Um, and so, so traders there then had to, by nature, be at least bilingual or multilingual. Um, and uh, uh, Malinche was part of that. And she um, was sold by her family uh, into servitude and then um, uh, ends up um, in you know, this area around Laguna de, de Terminos uh, when the Cortez expedition comes through. Uh, and after fighting with Maya community, um, then um, uh, eventually you know, agree to uh, a peace treaty that involves the gifting of women um, by the Maya to the Spaniards. Uh, and this, you know, is a common Mesoamerican political strategy of trying to, um, you know, both appease and to create bonds between two groups and, you know, sort of a, a uh, um, after a conflict in particular. And so Malinche then uh, becomes part of the Cortez expedition and Cortez then, you know, I mean, she's treated as property. She was you know, already served into, uh, sold into servitude uh, in, you know, her pre-Hispanic indigenous world, and then uh, now to these foreigners again, um, Cortez gifts uh, her to um, someone on the expedition who outranked him in the world of Estremadura. And so uh, that indicates to, to um, historians that, you know, that he valued Malinche uh, and, and was then, you know, she was re-gifted. And then um, as the expedition is is progressing towards Veracruz and into the the um, the, the Gulf. Uh, it becomes apparent that Malinche can speak Nahuatl and and um, and can translate between Mayan and Nahuatl. Um, and so that and and you know this is a fascinating little chapter in that um, you know here's a woman who is living in her own you know um, uh, structures of oppression in many different ways, but then can take agency for herself and take an active role and, and reshape not just her own plight, but global history in this way where you know, she, she becomes a key translator and, and eventually a concubine to Cortez and, and has a son with him, uh, Martin, who's known as El Mestizo, uh, who was um, by some accounts Cortez's favorite son. Um, and so it's you know, such a fascinating uh, layer of history and thinking of of different motivations of of the people of the, the characters involved. In the chapter Orfos uh, New Allies, you have a section titled Over Mountains and Causeways. And in there you talk a little bit about Iztapalapa and I'm going to allow this space to ask you about it. Uh, I, I must confess, I was born and raised in Estapalapa, so it was really, really exciting to, to read about this. Can you talk about the significance of Estapalapa or what role it plays in this story? Yeah, well, so as you well know, Estapalapa is a peninsula that juts out, well, formerly jutted out into the lake system uh, in, in the Basin of Mexico. And so, so, you know, the Basin of Mexico is the broader um, uh, hydrological region where Mexico City is now dominates as the major metropolitan zone. Um, but it formerly had five different interconnected lakes um, that from north to south uh, went from being 
saltier in the north, like Lake Zumpango, uh, to freshwater lakes like Chalco y Xochimilco. And these are areas today, you know, you can still go as a tourist to Xochimilco, as many do, especially on, on Sundays, and, um, and, and, and go out on these boats uh, with mariachis and uh, having <laughs> food and drink <laughs> at the very environment. Um, but there are also, you know, very importantly, there was the system of um, raised fields known as chinampas, which were, was a form of wetland uh, reclamation that was really an ingenious agricultural system by the Aztecs. Uh, because so, you know, up in the high, cool uh, basin of Mexico, which is about a mile and a half above sea level, um, you know, I, uh, just as a sidebar, often, you know, when I say people in Boston that I'm, I'm going to Mexico for the summer, uh, people will say, oh, I'm sure it's going to be really hot. But in, in actuality, it's, it's usually cooler, as you know, than like summers in the, the northeastern U.S., which are very humid. So you have this dry, cool climate um, gets into the 80s and it's sunny, but then it will drop down into the say 50s at night. Um, and so because of that mountainous climate, um, there is the, the uh, uh, issue of frosts affecting um, crops. And, and not just that, it, you know, central Mexico also has a very seasonal rain pattern. And so um, these are two challenges that farmers face, indigenous farmers in the area. And so the chinampas then were this really um, ingenious solution to it because they kept permanently irrigated. There was always a water source. And being by the lake bed, they were um, always slightly warmer than the mainland. And so they wouldn't face these crops. And so because of that, communities like Iztapalapa and Chalco and Xochimilco um, were very prosperous Aztec city-states uh, of the time. And so this, and this then becomes really the entry point. I, I, there are you know, sort of two dramatic, I think, entry points into the Aztec core. One must have been when after the massacre at Cholula, uh, the, the expedition, which now included uh, Tlaxcalteca as you know, this huge fighting force of native allies, um, went over what is now known as the Paso de Cortez, which is the, which is the mountain pass between the two huge volcanoes, Popocatépetl and Itzak-Siwat, uh, which are you know, up around 17,000 feet above sea level and snow-capped uh, year-round. And so that first vantage of coming down uh, from the mountains and seeing Tenochtitlan and the other Aztec cities around the lake must have been very impressive from a distance. Then, after staying in Iztapalapa and being you know, greeted by emissaries from lots of Altepeme, which is the plural of Altepeme, or the city-states in that area, um, uh, there's a dramatic walk up one of the causeways, the East Apalapa Causeway, into Tenochtitlan. And that's where we have so the, the chronicler Bernal Diaz de Castillo, uh, who has you know, one of the fullest accounts of, of the conquest. Um, he uh, uh, mentions that you know, looking, gazing at the, the uh, cities around the lake uh, reminded us of Amadis of Gaul, which was like sort of this chivalric uh, novel of, of its day. Um, and uh, you know, gives you an idea of these, these, uh, this conquest force of crappy uh, you know, soldiers who sort of were, were linking themselves to this, this tradition of knights of yore. Um, and, uh, um, and, and even says that you know, we, we even thought it could be a dream. So they really were impressed by the urban landscape uh, from Iztapalapa 
into Tenochtitlan. Very nice to hear about that. And as I warned before, I could uh, read another epigraph, and I'm going to read the one you used uh, to open the chapter where you explain the Spanish uh, Mexica War. Nothing but flowers and songs of sorrow are left in Mexico and Tlatelolco, where once we saw warriors and wise men. This chapter is rich in detail about the war, resistance, and siege. But I just wanted to, to read that epigraph and stop for, uh, for a moment before all of that war happened and the siege and the sorrow and ask you to explain the significance of Tenochtitlan and see if you can tell us how it looked like before that moment of <laughs> war. Yeah. Tenochtitlan, um, you know, was one of was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere uh, at that time and um, would have been more populous than any place in Spain. Um, it, the, the population of Tenochtitlan's estimates vary. Um, a very low estimate would be you know, under around 100,000 or so, up to some that go up to 300,000. But most people sort of um, are situate themselves somewhere around 150 to 200,000 individuals in Tenochtitlan. That would have been larger than any place in Spain. Sevilla was about 90,000 uh, or so. Um, and really in Europe, it was bigger than London. Um, Paris might have been the only peer within, within Europe. So it was an incredibly populous uh, city. And this actually was true for a lot of Mesoamerican history. Mesoamericans tended to develop very large cities and um, you can ask why exactly that was. One, one possible functional explanation is the lack of pack animals meant that you know, nucleating people for market exchange was, um, was beneficial economically, that you, know, you had this sort of these really big hub cities that then were linked by different trade routes um, through the countryside. And so, um, but so, some sort of mix of you know, that, that economic rationale plus um, the, the breadbasket of the Aztec Empire, which were those chinampas I mentioned to the south, really had a population boom in the Aztec period. And so Tenochtitlan was the crown jewel of the cities uh, in the Aztec core. Um, it was um, uh, arranged on a grid pattern with both the causeways and uh, chinampas um, forming you know, this latticework of passages. So there would be canoes all throughout the lakes um, coming into the city. Now, I, I should say that the Tenochtitlan was one of two cities on the same island. And so its sister city was Tlatelolco. And that um, uh, the epigraph you read was from the Florentine Codex Book 12, which was um, written largely by scribes who, are, who were Tlatelolca. And so these were Mexica ethnically. Um, but they identified as this city-state, Tlatelolco, which was to the north of the island and then annexed by Tenochtitlan. And so because of that, they always have um, a uh, skepticism to, towards the Tenochtitlan. And you can read a lot of that in, in Book 12 of the Florentine Codex. Like they, They're the ones who often portray Moctezuma as cowardly. Um, he wasn't their speaker. He, he was, and they, they, they portray their own speaker as more valiant. And so there, there's some of that interesting bias in native sources based on city-state. Um, but we now know a lot more about Tenochtitlan, and this is one place where archaeology is really leading the way 
Um, we, we, of course, have these accounts, these written textual accounts. But ever since the 1970s, uh, especially starting with the um, project at Templo Mayor uh, run by Eduardo Mactos Moctezuma, um, now it's directed by Leonardo Lopez Luján. Um, that is the main temple of uh, Tenochtitlan, the double temple that was uh, associated with um, two gods, Huitzilopochtli, which was a, a patron god of the Mexica associated with uh, warfare in the sun, and then Tlaloc, who is the uh, water fertility god in, in this, this double temple. There's been extensive work and fascinating finds continue to come out of the Templo Mayor project. There's also the um, Proyecto Arqueológico Urbano, or POW, um, and uh, uh, that project is um, involves different excavations around the Socolo and other areas of, of uh, the Centro Historico of Mexico, um, where, you know, at, in an opportunistic way of salvage archaeology, um, new buildings from the sacred precinct and even outside of the sacred precinct of Tenochtitlan uh, have come to light. And, um, and that includes new finds, including one that horrified the Spaniards, which was the Tzompantli, or the skull rack. And the skull rack, um, of course, was where after usually these prisoners of war uh, or captives in, in battle had been sacrificed at Temple Mayor, their, their you know, severed head would be placed on the skull rack. Um, this, of course, is very foreign to us, but you have to remember that you know, heads were displayed outside the Tower of London at the same time. Uh, and, um, but this was a huge scale. The Sampantli now has proven to be very large, um, corroborating some of the textual accounts. And so, you know, I think the Spaniards were wowed by the city. Um, they talk about Tataloco's marketplace as being uh, larger than any they had seen, except for Constantinople, which you know, would have been the, the largest in the Mediterranean world at the time. Um, the orderliness of, of the city was very impressive to them, the cleanliness. But then there was also this element of sacrifice, like having uh, bloodstained idols in the, in the temples and, and this Zompantli uh, that appears to have horrified them, or at least they played that up as they were writing their text to uh, justify the invasion that they undertook. And in your last chapter, you tell us that an enduring myth of the Spanish invasion of Mesoamerica or encounter with Mesoamerica is that the defeat of Tenochtitlan marked a definitive completion of what is known as the conquest of Mexico. Why is that a myth? <laughs> Because, yeah, there's this, and this, I'm, I'm taking that term myth in, in particular from uh, authors like Matthew Restall, who wrote a book called The Seven Myths of the Spanish Conquest. And so, and, and, you know, that's the idea of a myth of completion, like that there was, the Spaniards came and they conquered Mexico uh, and basically all by themselves. And this was done in a, in a neat sort of two-year interval of 1519 to 1521 where now we know that's not at all the case, that native allies uh, were essential, that this, this conquest would not have happened the way that it did without um, the native alliance of, of uh, both Tlaxcala and, and also Texcoco, which was the second largest of the Aztec Triple Alliance city-states. Um, and uh, then it continued, and it continued for many decades after 1521. And so it included you know, um, Cortez's second-in-command, uh, Alvarado, and his uh, um, brothers, actually, there were a few uh, Alvarado brothers who, who led the, the invasion of Guatemala and the Maya region, 
um, and then areas to the north and even as far north as the American Southwest. And so, um, so uh, for instance, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the, and um, uh, uh, the Coronado expedition and um, involved a, a large percentage of, of uh, native central Mexicans on that as well. And so this stitching together of a greater New Spain, which included you know, Mesoamerica and into the U.S. Southwest, um, was a very protracted process, and then it even rippled across the Pacific. So, um, you know, the the uh, colonization of the Philippines was really a Mexican endeavor um, that happened from Acapulco and started the Manila Exchange. Uh, and along the route, there are even Mexican introductions. I have colleagues who are working in Guam, and there are uh, elements of Mexican material culture uh, out in these far-flung Pacific islands. Um, and so thinking of that as a long-term century long uh, process of, uh, you know, creating this new Spain and this, you know, this hub for a global empire. And I don't want to end this conversation without talking about the pictures and illustrations that one might find in the book. A lot of the pictures were taken by you and the illustrations were by Pedro Cahuansi Hernández. Uh, how did you, what was the process of planning which pictures to include the illustrations, anything related to them, you yeah, like to say? I, I, well, I mean, being an archaeologist means my focus is, is material culture. And I, and I always joke that we, you know, we're a visual people, like we need to show you the stuff because a lot of our arguments comes, come from analyzing space, place, uh, art, material culture in different ways. And so it was clear to me that I would need a lot of images for this. And of course, this is something you always negotiate with your press, um, but that included having a certain number of color plates that would sort of capture some of the more vivid uh, you know, mural art or paintings and, and, and certain cities that are, are in the color plates. Um, so I did really want to illustrate this point of uh, palimpsest history in places, the fact that there are these layers of, of deep history and, and, and many of the different sites that I'm, I'm discussing and, and obviously visited and, and um, uh, uh, sort of read that history myself uh, in terms of being there and, and thinking about uh, uh, place and, and layers of history. Um, but then also the stuff, the artifacts, the, the material culture. Um, I'm fascinated by the early colonial period and, and you know, what is called syncretismo or syncretism, the, the, the blending of elements um, and, you know, um, Archaeologists and historians use a lot of terms for this, including ones like hybrid, that there could be you know, hybrid uh, material culture. But something you know, that really came out of doing this particular book was thinking of hybridity as like the nature of human existence, that we're always building on what came before us. And so I have you know, one image that is um, one of the first churches in Tlaxcala. And if you look at the roof, it's this uh, rosette uh, um, lattice uh, wooden roof that is completely Islamic. It is, is like a mudejar roof. And, and there's other examples like in, in Cholula, uh, these, uh, this uh, art, arc colonnade, which really looks like the mosque at Cordoba. So of course, you know, this, the Spaniards are bringing this mudejar, which is a hybrid style, um, uh, to Mexico, which had its own hybridity, right? So one of the plates is um, from the wonderful site of Kakashla, which is in Tlaxcala, which is uh, shows this mix between 
um, very central Mexican motifs and gods like the feathered serpent and the storm god and very Maya-like artistic um, uh, elements in, in this hybrid painting. And, and you know, really the, the, the history of these two places, um, and I would <laughs> um, say even of humanity as a whole, is, the mix of, is, the, is this continual mixing uh, of historical precedents. Um, and so, yeah, and one that I also do in the last chapter um, and uh, the epigraph for that one I chose very purposefully because um, it is written by a, a mestizo Tlaxcalan um, named Diego Munoz Camargo, who wrote his own account in the 16th century of the history of, of his native Tlaxcala and, and broader Mexico, and even got on a boat and brought it to Spain to present to Felipe II, um, who was then you know, the king of Spain, and what I love about this is he's invoking the pillars of Hercules and the pillars of Hercules start, uh, you know, the narrative of the deep history of Iberia as well, because that was the point around what is, you know, uh, Gibraltar uh, and its uh, counterpart in uh, North Africa that comes from Greco-Roman lore of, uh, you know, these areas, um, this area that was seen as, as pretty much the end of the world. And, and so, um, Hercules, within this you know, Greco-Roman tradition, was supposed to have put a sign that said, um, no further, non plus ultra. And then Carlos V, the you know, emperor, took plus ultra as his motto, that, that, that we sailed farther beyond these pillars of Hercules. And what I love about Munoz Camargo is here's someone who is a mestizo who is drawing on you know, the indigenous history of Tlaxcala, but then framing it within this this you know, broader historical narrative of, of plus ultra and, and, and a, a transatlantic endeavor. And he's educated now in those same Greco-Roman um, narratives from, from the Mediterranean. And David, I know writing a book is a major effort, but is there any other book inside or is any other project you are working <laughs> on right now that you would like yeah. to share? Well, I, I mean, I'm primarily, you know, uh, continuing to work in Teotihuacan and, um, and, you know, I'm fascinated by re really just normal life. What, what, you know, so Teotihuacan is, is, uh, you know, by some accounts, the most visited archeological site in the Americas. It gets between three to 5 million visitors a year. And they go primarily, of course, to the pyramids. They go on the, the famous uh, Avenue of the Dead and they see the Sun and Moon Pyramid and Feathered Serpent Pyramid. Um, but I've been, uh, since 2012, I've been looking at uh, just quotidian life, daily life, in the southern periphery of the city in a, in a district called Tlahinga. And this is not part of the protected tourist zone. So it involves really close collaboration with the community. Um, and I, I really enjoy that, working with um, well, the community of San Pedro, Tlahinga, and um, others around there um, in, uh, you know, jointly uh, looking at this history of just daily life on the urban fringe of what was then the largest city of the ancient world, uh, I'm sorry, of the ancient Americas, um, and you know, collaborating with them on you know, where to dig next and how to, to um, look at household organization and, and um, neighborhood organization um, and uh, you know, what sort of parallels uh, are, are there for them at present of being sort of on the periphery now of, of Mexico City, another mega city. Um, 
and so that's been really fulfilling and and um, you know we're working on publications both on the sort of academic side of what was life like there and then also with the community partnerships we formed there. David, I want to thank you for being on the show today talking about Coalition of Worlds, a deep history of the fall of Aztec Mexico and the forging of New Spain. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Pamela. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time, hasta pronto.